to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today, uh, we have uh, Chris back, so yay for me. Uh, I'm sure you're all tired of hearing me. Chris, welcome back, man. It's good to be here. I'm glad to be back. Uh, I've missed your face. I commented that you uh, shaved your head, and it kind of confuses me, but also impresses me every time I see it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was one of those, you know, prophet in the wilderness moments. Mostly wilderness, very little profit. But <laughs> Does that of... mean that you're going to grow it out now and your beard at the same time and just kind of see what happens? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, perfect. I'll be like, is it Radagast in Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Nesting is that? Yeah. Next year, this time. <laughs> uh, don't make promises you can't keep, Chris. <laughs> Those are the only uh, promises I can make. <laughs> Uh, back with us today is actually a friend and guest of the podcast previously, and I like to call him friend uh, because, well, I mean, we had the podcast and then, you know, he was a really, really helpful voice for, for me during a kind of a tough season. Really, really appreciate him. So Bishop Ed, thanks so much for being here with us today. My delight. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Um, now, it is no longer Bishop Ed. I mean, it is still Bishop Ed, but now it's Dr. Bishop Ed. Or is it Bishop Doctor Ed? I don't know <laughs> which way does it go. Too, the okay. right Reverend Doctor. The, uh, the right, right Reverend Doctor is actually the, the uh, official title. All Perfect. those letters, though, you know, they're confusing. Yeah, <laughs> I can't promise to remember it, but I will try. Um, so you just finished your doctorate, and yes. it is in something that kind of blends, at least as far as I know, kind of blends a little bit into. Um, and we're skipping the formalities. We know you. If you if you don't know Ed, jump back to another podcast and listen to my first one with Ed, and then you'll you'll get to know Ed. Any life updates? I guess I could ask that question. No, life is good. You know, we're here. We've survived COVID. We're delighted. We're Perfect. delighted to be touching people, seeing people in person. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um. So, I think let's just start with very kind of like. If you had to explain your your dissertation to someone as dumb as me, how would you do it? And let us know kind of what you worked on, because I think it does touch on some things that Chris and I have been dealing with all throughout the season. Right, right. Well, it's it's about God. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Groundbreaking, really. Human life, right? Never so heard I, that one before. <laughs> well, I, I, what I was really going after, of course, the, one of the things that's lovely about uh, the doing a uh, any kind of uh, postgraduate work in the UK is they're kind of throwing you in the deep end of the pool mm-hmm. and say, okay, begin to think these things through, follow the you know where the literature leads you and instead of coming with all your preconceived ideas let the literature sort of balance you around and and discover and so i I was going to i did my ma in history at the university of nottingham and i thought well maybe i'll do that because i love history and uh, i thought um you know i'm very very interested in the theological aspects of of how the holy spirit works in the human life pneumatology Mm. And of course, Dr. Green, um, 
is in uh, works with the University of Bangor, Bangor University, and uh, um, it, it and they have a Pentecostal kind of um, um, school there, and it caught my interest. I mean, I was brought up, you know, I, I was early on, I was involved with the Pentecostal world, Sims of God, but pretty quickly was bumped into uh, kind of the charismatic world, so charismatic mm-hmm. Catholic, charismatic Lutherans, and I was probably that charismatic or you know third wave-ish kind of group. And I kind of thought that a Pentecostals, you know, in the caricatured way, as fundamentalists, um, you know, who just hammered a few things like tongues and et cetera. And I, I didn't really have a lot of experience with the Pentecostal world. So I remember thinking, as I was doing that, I said, you know, I would love to go back into this and see if I can see where this deep sense of the presence and the power of the spirit in the human life, how it can be articulated uh, and how Pentecostals are articulating and dealing with it. And uh, to my absolute joy, I found rich streams that were in mm-hmm. the Pentecostal world, particularly since the 90s, uh, exploring aspects of um, faith and, and dealing with philosophy. I'm very interested in philosophy. I did, I did my undergrad in philosophy and religion. And the philosophy has always just been kind of an interest of mine. So it just caught my attention. So I jumped in and I started dealing with this kind of idea. This may sound a little opaque, but I I, I was thinking, I, I know that the presence of the spirit is something that's real, that everyone in the most basic sense can have a story whereby mm-hmm. they've encountered the spirit and there's something that's there. And, and I, I thought, you know, Pentecostalism, it's, it's probably more I could talk about Pentecostalisms because depending on the time in which a person experiences a, a, the spirit, the context in which they experience it, the location in which they experience it, they're South African or, or I mean, in Africa or they're in South America or they're in the Asia, they, mm-hmm. the way they articulate it seems to be different. It, it's almost as if the light of the spirit is pure and it refracts through different kinds of colored glass. And depending on where you are in history, um, Pentecostalism seems to be very vulnerable to uh, philosophies and ways of thinking about things and, and cultures in which we live. And so I was wondering, could we sort of get down to the raw aspects of what is Pentecostal qual Pentecostal? What is the actual experience? Mm-hmm. And and what how is it influenced upon or preponderated upon by the kind of context in which it emerged? So I started there and sort of followed yeah. where that, those breadcrumbs led. Yeah. And I know that um, British dissertation thing well. That's what I have Chris for now, is to help me realize <laughs> that I have was thrown way into the deep end, and here he, I am, you know. He's a great supervisor. So that's needing good. the literal lifesaver. Um, no, I think, that's, I think that's fascinating, Ed. What, for me, as someone, of course, that came from that tradition, and you say caricature of fundamental, but I would say that is my upbringing, right? Like very fundamental in Pentecostalism. But for some of our listeners, maybe kind of explain, um, I, I would imagine that given me and Chris, there's quite a few of our, our listeners who are Pentecostals, but yes. there is one of these kind of perpetual questions, right? Like we were just at Society for Pentecostal Studies. I say we, I think actually just me this time. My, my friend Chris did not join, but um, we and sorely missed, by the way, um, but there's a, a constant question, even at this Society for Pentecostal Studies, 
that constantly ask the same question, well, what really is Pentecostalism anyways? Like you would kind of like guess that we would know what we are considering we have a whole society around it, but there's this constant question, what is this? So maybe for our listeners, I don't think Chris and I have ever really defined it because we just kind of lived it, right? Like it's just who we are. So how would you, now that you've kind of done this study, as you kind of started going down the bread trail, what do you even define Pentecostalism as? Well, I I love uh, Hollenweger. He I quote him in the in the context of the thesis, and where he he argues that there's a Pentecostal spirituality that was there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It didn't mature, and I mean, it, out of that come theologies and and ways that we construct what we think Pentecostalism is. But there's a kind of deep spirituality, and what I started with was. Um, just the notion of religious expression and experience anthropologically with guys like Rudafato, Schlamacher, and uh, realize that so many of the approaches, when they talk about from the religious studies, the academic religious studies, really define a lot of what we experience in the Pentecostal world, you know, revivalist experiences. And so you go to all of the studies that have been done, um, uh, even outside, from outsiders, from the inside of Pentecostalism or whatever, revivalism. And they're remarkably accurate about what they describe, this notion of experiencing awe, this notion of um, encountering the holy and something that, you know, where you feel like you're a creature, right? And yeah. and this sort of awe, openness and, and undoing of yourself. So these things are very understood by anybody who's been at an altar, right? <laughs> and experienced the power mm-hmm. of the spirit, right? We all kind of get that. So what, what, what surprised me was I thought, I, I, I sort of stripped it down, Pentecostal, qua Pentecostal, as I was doing the research, seemed to say that first it was revivalism. There's this idea that somehow in revival, I used, again, Rudolf Otto a lot, I, where he talks about this notion of the numinous, which he suggests is something where God pulls on people and mm-hmm. begins to make God's self known. And when that happens, there's, you know, it's that kind of, there's confusion. You don't know exactly what's going on. And he uses descriptions like uh, even from scripture, uh, he is a Christian, but he's speaking as a religious scholar. Um, but um, he talks about Abraham, I was excuse me, about Moses coming to the um, bush that's on fire mm-hmm. and the ambiguity of that moment, you know, what's going on, what's happening here. There's fire, there's a bush. It doesn't seem to be burning into nothingness. And so what is this story about? Is it about the fire? Is it about the bush? Is it, the ground seems different so he takes off his shoes you know there's this kind of sense of of holiness and ambiguity and that kind of a little bit of confusion perhaps and 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 so he's talking about these kinds of moments that people have in their lives that he defines as the numinous experience i think that is what we call revivalism that on Hmm. some level um what is at the heart of pentecostalism is the sense of being undone the sense of an encounter with the divine, the sense that there's something more out there. Actually, the word numinous means the nod of the gods. So somehow God is nodding at us or pulling at us or uh, wooing us into God's presence, yeah. that kind of thing. So I think that's absolutely an essential Pentecostalism. And that whatever we do in our theolo- theology, we should always come back to how can we keep that moment as fresh as possible? How can we continue yeah to seek and pursue encounters with the living God in our theologizing. That's why um, so many say when it comes to Pentecostalism, one of the ways that we do theology is through on our knees, 
right? That kind hmm. of sense of how do we encounter God in this? So that's revivalism. The second thing is, and this is, can maybe lift some eyebrows, is this notion of mysticism. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, yep. a kind of way that, that again, it's that mysticism is a little bit in theology, it's a little bit on that what's referred to as apophatic side, you know, where you don't really know what's going on. That yeah. there's, it's, it's really the darkness of, of our understanding. Um, and, and, and yet there's this, again, the idea of mysticism is becoming one with the divine, that somehow in our encounters, you know, that we have with this otherness and the sense of being a creature, somehow there's a uniting in it. Yeah. And there's a sense of Jesus coming into my life and God being present in my life. And there's a kind of union where I don't become God. God doesn't become me, but somehow it's, there's a kind of marriage in sense, right? right. You know, Paul talks about, you know, Christ and the church being like the husband and wife. So that that's a sense of deep mysticism. I think that also is deep is Pentecostal core Pentecostal one of its essentials that as we theologize and as we mature and as we cognize and as we try to understand what it is that we're to be about there should always be that sense that that at the end of the day it's union with God and openness and union with one another this kind of yeah. mystical kind of space and and then thirdly um, I think that and this I got a resource from uh, Amos Young. And that's this notion of, a, he calls it a pneumatological imagination. Mm-hmm. That somehow when we engage with the spirit, not only do we have this moment of, you know, <laughs> oh my gosh, God, and you know, that creature sense and that sense of unity with God, all of a sudden our minds start thinking different. We start imagining possibilities. We start thinking about a world that is, that somehow has been touched by God and our imaginations about what can be shifts. And I think I think you see that in right at the beginning of the church. I mean, you look at all the ways that the church has to reimagine things, right? Even mm-hmm. everything from there's only one God to there's only one God, but expressed in three persons. I mean, that's what a shift or yeah. the shift when, when uh, Peter goes up on top of that house, the rooftop, and he's told, I mean, the word of God has been separate yourself in some way. And all of a sudden, God's word's coming against God's word and say, no, be one with these, these Gentiles and welcome them in. And so there's a shift of being exclusively nationalistic Jewish separate to actually being one with people from other nations. I mean, those kinds right. of radical shifts that come, the Jesus teaching about how the, the law is fulfilled and how it's recalibrated. These things are tectonic shifts that come because I think of a pneumatic imagination. The spirit begins to bring the idea of what can possibly be. And I think that this is so huge because I think this is where Pentecostals can lead the charge in theology in a rapidly changing world where all the thing, where all of a sudden things have shifted and they're not like we thought they were. Instead of panicking, and or or hunkering down and becoming uh, um, sort of so conservative that we be, we weaponize ideas. Yeah, that we actually try to consider what's happening, what's actually going on, uh, where we can handle Copernican revolution. We can handle realizing you can't own people and we abort slavery. I mean, these are huge societal shifts that I think Pentecostals have a way to engage in those conversations where we understand things might be shifting, but how can we stay faithful? but have a different imagination for how we work through yeah. these very shocking things. Yeah. What, what I well, love about, I, I, and I, what I love, I mean, just to, 
I'll give Chris a t- chance to talk eventually. But what I love about kind of everything that you've just said, I mean, you know, Daniel Costello's book on Pentecostals as Christian yes. mystics saved me as a Pentecostal. I've said that a thousand times Resource now. Like it, gave, it gave me language to say what I felt, right? Like this this idea of kind of revivalism as you described it. And then, of course, this this kind of pneumatological imagination, right? And again, I don't want to go down this and just be like, this is all we talk about anymore. But there is something to those three things, I think, that you paired that prime Pentecostals to be faithful deconstructionists. Yes. Like like to consistently yet again go back and say, this doesn't line up with this. And now I've got to have this pneumatological imagination, right? Like I've got to rethink this and it gives me that this kind of mysticism to say, I don't know everything and I'm okay with not knowing everything, but I'm still going to look anyways. And I'm still going to yes. kind of like agree that there's something else here. Right. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but th- I just had to say, because those three things just, I think in so many ways give language to why this group that could be considered so fundamentalist is yes. also one of the biggest groups that we see deconstruction coming out of, out of kind of the younger generations within that group because they're the pump was primed, right? Like it was kind of said, like, this is who you are. And then we're kind of surprised like, Oh my gosh, you guys are doing it right. Like what, what's going on here? Yes. Yes. No, uh, Dr. Green, go ahead. I'll let you jump in here. Cause I, yeah, I think I've been kind of finding my way to this language for a while now, but I think the way that Aaron just phrased that, raises the point that what we often called renewal was actually deconstruction under mm. under a different name right yeah yes. Pentecostalism, the, the revivalism that you started with moved along by this pneumatological imagination right i mean that we call that renewal but for people who were experiencing the spirit and had been formed in other christian traditions yeah that was a kind of deconstruction. Yeah. There, were, there were things that were being, that we just called it renewal. That's a much more, uh, I don't know. Positive. Word, yeah. Right. But something like that. It's, it's, it's a, it's a more, yeah, it, it sounds more spiritual. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a loaded term, but I, I think it, there's, we need to pay attention to that, right. That, that the, the experience is not changing probably, or at least not in every case. We're just now using different language that's loaded differently, right? But I, I do think part of this raises one of the one of the ironies that we've danced around already in this conversation, which is this Pentecost tradition that's renewalist or revivalist and pneumatocentric and mystical tends over time to become fundamentalistic too mm-hmm. yes. i think part of the reason is i think and I'd, I'd love bishop for you to just weigh in on this my sense is it's because when you have pentecostal spirituality that's not rooted in a tradition that catechizes you forms you liturgically provides spiritual direction and pastoral care when when revivalist spirituality has to be an end in itself it doesn't have the resources when it shifts from being an adjective to a noun, it doesn't mm-hmm. have the resources for catechesis, discipleship, spiritual. Yeah. So it recourses to what's easiest and most efficient. And in a kind of popular American culture, that is fundamentalist evangelicalism. Like that's mm-hmm. the model that you can most easily adapt to the most people 
with you know the quickest and the, sh the shortest amount of time. So yes. I think part of what I've seen, Bishop Ed, with you is that at the same time you're writing, you know, over the years that you're writing this work, exploring philosophically the, the openness of Pentecost spirituality, you're also grounded in daily prayer. You're also grounded in a liturgical tradition. You're, you're serving as a bishop of a diocese. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. How, what, what happens to Pentecostal spirituality when it kind of floats free of the larger Christian yeah. liturgical tradition and yeah. how that worked out for you personally as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I want to say that I want, I want to come around it. It was sound like I'm completely avoiding the question. I'm not, but the, the thing that was so powerful to me as a human being was I went to India in the early eighties and the way that that culture thought, it was my first, you know, it was the first time I was at it. I've been in other places, but I was never embedded for any long length of time. And I was there for a few weeks. And the thing that so shocked me was how the average Indian kind of looked at life. And I kept, because I, I don't know what it was, but I guess being an American, we think the only people that think right are us. And this kind of notion that everybody in all time period of time has thought exactly the way I think. I just think this way. And of course, if you're smart, you'd think this way. Or if you're, you know, not tricked, you know, you'd think this way. And it was the first time I began to understand, wait, I think the way I think because there are forces, these intellectual forces that have been involved in the Western culture that I, I just was unaware of. And that first moment it was such a shock for me that that's what got me interested in philosophy there's a quote that i have in here by houston smith i wanted to read uh, that i think kind of couches this whole point he says the dominant assumptions of an age color the thoughts beliefs expectations and images of the men and women who live within it being always with us these assumptions usually pass unnoticed like a pair of glasses, which, because they're so often on the wearer's nose, simply stop being observed. But this doesn't mean they have no effect. Ultimately, assumptions which underlie our outlooks on life refract the world in ways that condition our art and our institutions. The kinds of homes we live in, our sense of right and wrong, our criteria of success, what we conceive our duty to be, what we think it means to be a man or a woman, how we worship our God, or whether indeed we have a God to worship, end quote. So hmm. what he's basically saying is the very ways in which we understand our world are through these, these lenses that we've been given. We have Western cultured lenses that we see through. And most of us don't realize that, that we are the children of the Enlightenment, that the whole notion of how we think about God and how we think about theology is oftentimes influenced by the notion of science, right? The idea that, that we can get data, we can lay it all out, and we can come to absolute conclusions. This thing was applied, scientific methodology was applied. And by the time Pentecostals show up, it was deeply embedded by the 18th century in, in uh, uh, conservative thought and then Pentecostalism in the 20th century. You know, it's just, we just... These were the glasses we were handed. And so we take scripture to be the data and began to lay out everything in absolute perfection. What's interesting is, 
is that even though when Pentecostalism starts, there's an openness to new methodology and there's openness to, you know, kind of theological, just theology, recasting things. I mean, part of our history in theological thought is the oneness group, which rethinks, right. you know, something is foundational and, you know, part of the sort of tradition of Christianity as the Trinity, right? But it dares to rethink it because of the way that they're open to the spirit and opening with the new imagination and wanting to consider things. But that's a very, in the context of, of being post-enlightenment, where everything needs to be parsed out very, very carefully, what ends up happening is that people get rigid and they think it's been done with. They think that we have all the text laid out. There's actually at the end of the 1800s, uh, there was a lot of end of science prophecies because they had thought everyone had figured everything out and that um, there's not going to be any new discoveries. All we have to do is, you know, Newton's laws. All we have to do is kind of figure it out. And there might be a tiny changes in the world, but there's nothing, no new discoveries to be had. And all of a sudden, here comes Einstein. Pow! And, you know, so we see all kinds of things that we didn't see that rocks, the, yeah. you know, the intellectual world. But, but I think the point is, is that, that, that we have to own, particularly in the West, that some of the ways why we're so fundamentalist is because we like things to be conclusive, particularly in religion. You know, we want things yeah. to be absolute, right? So we we kind of carry that. And so when you start bumping up against change and up against stuff, you just, it throws you. So I think one of the things I love about like liturgy is that to get into your, to your point, uh, Chris, is that Liturgy keeps us tethered because it's just scripture. We rehearse, we dance around texts and we let them speak to us. And then we pray prayers that are deeply enriched theologically that are, you know, rooted in axiomatic truth, you know, about God being who God is and God being willing to lead it. So it's a safe place to hang on to while we try to ask questions like, what in the world's going on? What's happening? What should we do? How should we respond? How do we deal with all these changes in our social situations? And how do we deal with, with new ways of looking at things when the old ways don't work? And so it's 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 a way to stay tethered so that you can explore. That's, I don't know hmm. if you guys are in a ropes course. But one of the fun things about a ropes course is you do these crazy things, but the whole time they got you tied. Yeah. <laughs> so you're yeah. not freaking out. I mean, you can do crazy things because you're tied. And I think that's what, if there's anything that I think is missing in the revivalistic mysticism, the metallurgical uh, imagination, I think that if, if, unless people are tethered in some way to the tradition and things that don't have to change or shouldn't change, uh, it's difficult to not want to lock down and be uh, conservative in the sense you're defending everything because you don't want anything to change because we have to be faithful to the gospel. Yeah. It's it's interesting with you saying that because on one hand I can say well, it's easier, right? Like it's easier to kind of just sit back and go, I've we've got it all figured out. I don't need to re-examine. I you know th this is done. This has been stated, right? But then on the flip side though, it, it's it's harder because there's so much new information coming in. There's still so much happening that actually just becomes a strain to, to try and force the thing to always be the same, right? So what we think is kind of built in comfort actually is what's causing more of the anxiety, so to speak, yes. right? Because yes. now it's the culture war, right? Like, well, everything was fine 20 years ago when I was set in stone and that's how culture worked. But 
I never progressed and now culture is going to move somewhere else. And now I'm, this is the way it's comfortable for me, but it's also really hard, right? We can't engage with the public unless we understand how to negotiate around some of these issues and uh, think them through and, and be rooted in, in something that's ancient, but able to process the way things are changing. I mean, there's, I mean, it wasn't until 1925, uh, January 1st, 1925. They discovered the universe. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they, they knew there were stars out there and they knew that, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff, but they didn't discover the vastest until that's 1925. What else are we going to discover? Imagine if we discover life on other planets. Imagine if we are 10,000 years from now and Jesus still hasn't come. Yeah. Imagine if uh, science has its way without being bound too much to ethics and we keep filtering out all human beings who are less than looking a certain way or being in a certain way. And we have a kind of super humanity that starts to emerge in the world. Imagine yeah. if a meteor hits and most, you know, half of the world is knocked out. Imagine if another pandemic hits and another 40% of the world, you know, there's so many things that can happen that may happen that are, we can't just lock into a way of thinking, thinking we're defending it. We've got to be able to say, look, at what we know God is real. We know God incarnates. We know God's in this with us. What we don't know is, you know, exactly how should the church respond to some of this? I mean, we had right. slavery in play for how many centuries as the church? 15, 16 centuries? The church, 17 centuries. The church is complicit. Right. And then when somebody talked about you know, when the society is who led the church into this conversation, when the society got sick of it and started saying, uh, you know, hey, we need to change this. And there were lots of, quote, fundamentalist Christians who were saying, if you throw out slavery, you might as well throw out the Bible because right. the apostolic church had slavery in it. You cannot get rid of slavery. You cannot say it's wrong on this basis. You might need to reform it, but you can't say it's wrong. So we got through that, right? It was a very divisive issue. The Copernican Revolution. The Bible says yeah. the sun goes around us. <laughs> How do we address this? Is the Bible no longer true? Well, navigating through that, understanding that there are ways in which we see that have to be in check, that we have to learn. That's why I suggest, you know, not only the essences of what is Pentecostal called Pentecostal, I, I talk about ways that, that that manifest. And then from there, start talking about, well, how would we talk about a pneumatological theological methodology? How could we begin to face situations that have changed radically that would normally throw us and make us conservative and hunker down to actually engage in the conversation and in a ways that are meaningful and that we can be understood? In yeah. The and, and I don't know if you deal with this at all, right? But it just kind of kind of brought to mind, you know, that kind of early Pentecostal kind of catchphrase almost, if you will, that this is that theology, right? Like th this experience, right? It wasn't a an expression of I've had this experience and now I've got to so concretely define it. It was so very much I had this experience and I can find it over there too. And I'm actually kind of helping the two mutually inform each other, both my own experience and what the scripture said that experience is about, right? Like there's this kind of tension built into it that of course for early Pentecostals led to a more fundamentalist expression, right? You start seeing yeah. fundamental Which statements was, of truth. So that right? was happening in the culture. I mean, whatever was right. going on, I mean, I, it'd be great to say that all Pentecostals or any movement, they only heard from God in the Bible. 
Yeah, but that's not, they were also Americans. You know, right, also right. Very much, you know, bought into the American way of looking at things, right? So, right. Uh, you know, these various um, ways of, of, of addressing the world and thinking about the world, thinking about money, thinking about sexuality, all the things that we think about are pretty much echoes of the culture in which we live. Right? And so what, what the challenge is, is to not, to, to recognize that enough, to separate it and say, okay, it's okay to be informed by these things. And if we're going to push against them, we ought to understand what it is that was said and how we can push against it without being unfaithful or rejecting or isolating. But we need to be honest and realize that our own lenses have a particular slant to them. And we need to own right. that and say, this is where I come from. But these are the questions. What we've said isn't satisfying or at least it's not enough. We right. need to be open to this conversation. We need to talk about what the possibilities are. And that makes people really nervous. Oh, yeah. Right. It's it's that kind of hermeneutic of suspicion all the time. Right. Like whatever I whatever it is that I think I also know is flawed. I just may not yes. know how it's flawed. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the points I make in the in what I'm talking about uh, methodology is is recognizing that that we have to deeply embrace the notion that we see through a glass darkly, that even mm -hmm. our best understanding is somehow colored and, and less than. And that as we move toward the eschaton, that, that more illumination will come. And if we're faithful and we're connected and we talk with each other, we can navigate through. I mean, look at, uh, um, you know, when Acts 15 happens, the church comes together because they're, they don't know quite how to deal with these Gentiles that are coming in that don't get it. They've never eaten right. They don't act right. They, you know, they, they don't know the law of Moses, you know, <laughs> what, 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 right. what we could do with these guys. This, you know, and so they had to negotiate and talk about that. So there's ways in which I think as we're moving into, uh, we, we need to learn from those kinds of openness and how they walked to try to understand each other and, renegotiate those things with dialectic there's some yeah. sense in which which we can't just have one side because no one side is clear all of us are muddy all of us are are hurt by the fall or by the presence of sin in the universe and so no one has perfect view so the dialectic with of that notion of where there's this guy says this and this gal says this and okay well why are you saying that and we understand the more we understand in that dialectical process the, the more we start navigating toward what seems to be irenic, it's peaceful, it's in somehow seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit, the right. Acts 15 text. And, and I think that's what, what, what Pentecostals can step up to and lead the way in the theological community in the 21st century. Yeah, I think that's, at least that speaks to what I have, have wanted to do as a Pentecostal, right? As I've learned what being a Pentecostal is, right? But you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to use a conversation, you know, even my wife and I will, will have these conversations where sometimes she'll ask me, well, what do you think about X, Y, and Z kind of theological thing? And I can often just go, well, here's like the 16 different views and, you know, strengths and here's some weaknesses. And then, but, you know, but what do you believe? Well, I, yeah, whatever, you know, like, it's kind of like a, it's a, almost a shrugging of the, I mean, this one seems, I, I talk about with Chris, when we had Chris and Tom Ward on the podcast and they're talking about, you know, open theism versus classic theism. And I kind of make the joke that on my best days, I'm an open theist and my worst days, I'm a classic theist, mainly just because of what I need from God on that day. Right. Like I know the difference 
between them enough to know when I'm having a good day, I can be an open theist because I'm open to possibilities and having a bad day. I just want God to take care of it. And I need classic theism, right? Like I need that. But some of the kind of the question can start to be, I think for a lot of people that might push back is, well, then what can you know, right? Like what can you actually say about any of this? Well, this, this, and this is that the notion of what's the basis of, what's the foundation of, What's our, you know, what is the, what is the, what, what is the grounding of those things are really the result of the enlightenment. Those questions were brought up in the enlightenment. I mean, the embarrassment of the culture, the world recognizing that they had all gotten it wrong. I mean, the, 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 the real weight of import in the pre-modern world was authorities, you know, whether it was the church or whether it was, you know, the ancients, the philosophers, what did they say? And you coming up with something new was deeply threatening because they thought you're saying all of them were wrong, right? Hmm. So they pretty much embraced that. It was kind of this notion of, of um, what has been just needs to be echoed. And with imitation was the huge kind of expression of eth- for, for ethics or uh, a virtuous life was imitation. Remember the famous uh, uh, book, The Imitation of Christ, that whole notion right. of imitation. Imitation comes into dis- re- uh, dis- you know, rejection in the light of things like when all of a sudden this Copernican revolution where they're saying, wait a minute, you mean everybody everywhere throughout time has said the sun is going around the world? And even our eyes are telling us the sun is going around the world. So each of us on our own experience says the sun goes around the world. Right. That we're wrong. Epistemological crisis. How do we know anything? Right. Right. How can we really know anything? So this is where the, the, the pathway, this is Descartes, this is, Descartes wants to say, we know things because of, of you know, this idea of, 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 of an internal, I, I think, therefore I am, kind of a subjective knowing inside. And then you have the, on the other side of the day, you have guys like Francis Bacon, so we have to look at things as we see them, and we know reality by describing them. So there's all these debates that harken all the way back to Plato and Socrates. I mean, these arguments right. have been going on forever. But, but what, what's important about that whole dialogue is to simply recognize that this longing for certainty is really part of the glasses we woke up into in the Western world that hmm. wasn't present. So people in the, in the pre-modern world, they were okay with, you know, they, they believed their authorities, but they were okay if their authorities contradicted each other. <laughs> right. Not everything had to be perfect. I mean, this, this whole thing about the sun, I was so basic and freaked everybody out. But in general, you know, Augustine comes up with a list of, of canonical books and uh, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Who's the guy that's in Israel, Dr. Green? Jerome. Jerome. Jerome, yeah, is in Jerusalem. He comes up with a different set of books or just missing a bunch of them. And so the the fathers, after them, say they're both right. (laughs) You know, there's this kind of sense of right. Well, that freaks moderns out because we have to know exactly what's going on. What I think, just to skip because it's way too long of a conversation, but what I think is a beautiful way of looking at this and what I suggest in a theological methodology that's rooted in the pneumatological is something that, um, I don't know if you know who Frustadius sees, the guy that's, um, am I saying his name right? Um, yeah, Simo. Do you know Simo, Aaron? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That old Birmingham so, guy. Yeah, Good so friends. he has a, a work where he's talking about how 
um, Elam group, uh, mm-hmm. Elam Pentecostals have had to struggle to change to what's happening around them and how you go about that. Because there's people that say you can't change anything because then that means we've been wrong. Right. And, and so there's, you know, there's a way, the, the way to kind of navigate. And he actually resources McIntyre, who is this um, philosopher that when he mm-hmm. talks about um, the idea of what's true and false, he doesn't want to talk. He's not really after that. What he's after is what's rational. And so what his argument is, is that when we get into a context, when we're talking about what, what it is that we believe, it's, it, it leans into what's, what's called doxastic logic. It's this notion of in doxastic logic, you're not after epistemic knowledge. You're not after knowing for certain, What you're after is epistemic justification. Yeah. You're after, you're after, is this justified to believe this? So you have, is this, this idea of, of uh, not, I know this, but I, I believe in X. Right. And because I believe in X, therefore I act this way. So it's it, it's it's an argument from story. It's an argument from tradition. It's an argument that basically says, this is what Christians have always believed. And this is how we respond to that. We can't prove it. And to try to prove it using enlightenment proofs and all that is just, it's been proven to be a, 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 just a hopeless right. kind of thing, right? It's, it's, in, it's a circular internal object. You know, I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Because the Bible says it's true. Is it, well, you, you can't argue to a knowing from that. All you can argue from is that somehow this is what the church has believed. And in my lifetime, when I was a kid, when I talked to people in general about faith, I would say things like, do you have any idea what's going to happen to you when you die? Yeah. And that was a provocative question. I mean, people would oh, stop. I, think, yeah. oh, I don't really, yeah, I don't really know. You know, by the time you hit the nineties early, you know, it's like that was a non-question. The only, the question people have now is, do you believe anything that actually changes how you live? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you believe that actually has made a difference in your life that has transformed you? See, that's doxastic logic. It's it's this notion. It's it's what um, I forget what the guy's name is. Um, you might think of it, Chris, but um, uh, he's a guy that talks about M uh, manifestation. M. Um, how does he call it? Go ahead and say something because I want to look it up because it's worth looking up. Yeah, I can blame all these lapses of memory on the stroke now. So uh, that's a, it's a handy excuse. Oh, <laughs> I'm just an old talking about. We were just talking about him just a moment ago. Uh, Alston. Oh, and, uh, William Alston. So he oh, says, okay. this is a quote, he says, a person can become justified by using what he says I call M beliefs or M for manifestation. M beliefs are beliefs that to the effect that God is doing something currently vis-a-vis the subject, comforting, strengthening, guiding, communicating a message, sustaining the subject in being, or to the effect that God has has some perceivable property, goodness, loving, uh, power, lovingness. The intuitive idea is that the virtue of my being aware of God as sustaining me in being can justify my belief that God is that. So it's just, you know, it's this kind of notion of saying the, the, the most enduring way of having a conversation with people is that somehow the things that we believe have carried testimony in the church and mm. carried testimony in our lives. We can't prove it using right. realism or, or, um, you know, some sort of 
you know, proving process by, you know, um, syllogisms, right? Or, or, or even, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the, the deductive logic or inductive logic. We, we, the Bible and truths like this don't, they can't bear up under those kinds of pressures, but we can, yeah. use, the, we can use the logic of story, the logic of witness, which is what God is always witness in the world. I think back to, as an, as an example of this, I think back to an experience that a friend of mine had who was going to, uh, who was going to, who was working towards and eventually did become a missionary and became a missionary in Eastern Europe and was with going to do it through a Pentecostal, uh, historic Pentecostal denomination. And in his interview, the person from that denomination said, you know, I don't really know if I believe you're a Pentecostal. I have half a mind to ask you right now to start speaking in tongues. Like, like this, like idea of there is this proof in what you're talking about, right? Like that something that can be done, something that can be proven, um, uh, can be proven through kind of a modernistic kind of lens, right? Like I can see it happen, but then I go back to kind of Holland Vager, like who you brought up early on in the podcast. And I loved what he said, cause I kind of use some Holland Vager too, where he talks about Pentecostalism as a family, like resemblance. Like yes. there's less, there's less for me to say you're a Pentecostal because you believe X, Y, and Z, but there's more to say, I believe you're a Pentecostal because when I get with you, there's this resonation in the spirit that I don't get with that person yeah. over there. Right. Yeah. Well, this is, you're, you're, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's no question that people generally like safety, the sense of safety. Um, but, but some of the sense of safety that has been, rested out and grabbed by enlightenment thinking, rational thinking, is is in very many ways just a a, a pretend thing. It's a, mm. it's like, uh, how does um, uh, Murphy, Nancy Murphy says, she talks about it, how it's not that we're really in a foundation. We've just driven wedges deeper into the swamp and we have the illusion of being suspended. <laughs> you know, all we are is just these, we've just got some, these big uh, things stuck in the swamp. But, yeah. but it's, it's not unlike us sitting here. I mean, I feel like I'm really sitting here and pretty still. I'm on my chair, but literally, this isn't made up. I'm flying thousands of miles in space. Yeah. An hour, not only by the earth spinning and the earth moving and the solar system moving. I mean, we're literally in motion thousands of miles an hour. And yet I feel like I'm totally still here. So I can live in my stillness and think this is reality. But if everything really was still, everything would be destroyed. Right. So the illusions that we have, I just, I just think that what we have to understand, and I love how Pascal puts it. He talks about infinity and he says, how do you orient to infinity? God's in infinity. How do you orient to that? You know, there, there's no start. There's no middle. There's no end. It's infinity. And hmm. he said, it's like we're, floating in space, holding on to something, a chair and a table, and we're just pretending we're still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless you're like, so you know, I, that's what my there. argument would be for some people saying, well, I want them to know. I want to know. I've got scriptures. I want to know this. Yeah. I think, okay, go ahead. It doesn't make it real. I also need to clarify, I am not a flat earther. <laughs> <laughs> that You went right past that, and I was like, hold on a second. Either you actually believe I'm a flat earther or uh, I've really got to clarify this before. Like everyone's going, what's wrong with that guy? 
Chris, uh, you unmuted yourself, so I don't want to just keep blabbing away. No, you're you're good. It, it, there's no, yeah, there's no rush on it. I, I think the one of the things that strikes me about this conversation and about Ed, your project in general, is the way in which the deeper we go theologically in the tradition, and, and I don't just mean further into the past, but I mean conceptually deeper, like mm-hmm. grasping the 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 insights of church fathers and theologians mystics and grappling with their deeper thoughts about who god is and what it means to be human the more we are able to pray with creativity and imagination and the more we're able to engage in conversation across differences Mm -hmm. and the more we're able to imagine the world differently. So I think one of the persistent lies, maybe lies is too strong a word, but illusions, I don't know. That's I'm not sure that's in any way weaker term for it, but of the kind of, broadly speaking, the pop Christian culture that most of us have moved in and still move in is that if you go too deep into these conversations or into theological work, you will lose touch with prayer mm-hmm. and you will lose touch with your, your experience of God. Right. And what I think, and I'd love Ed, for you to talk a little bit about your own personal experience in this process, but I think what your work bears witness to and what it reminds us of is that in fact, in the church's history, the mystics and the theologians are not groups, two different groups of people, right? Like the, the people who, who have the most to say to us about prayer also happen to be the people who have the most to say to us about what it means to be God and what it means for creation mm-hmm. to be creation, right? And that somehow we've, many of us have bought into this notion that if you go too deep, you'll mm-hmm. lose touch with what matters most. Yeah. And I think part of what your work does among many other things is, is it challenges that. So if you just kind of maybe talk a little bit about your own experience with that, the depths of theological work and how that's tied to prayer for you and conversation and then, but, but also in general, just what you see, do you think that's changing or is it, is it worsening? So in some ways, last thing I'll say in terms of like broader patterns in the culture, I do think that the fundamentalism I grew up in is breaking apart. Yeah, but I'm not sure it's because we're moving towards some greater maturity, right? <laughs> like, I'm not sure that, I mean, thank God it's breaking apart, right? I mean, it needed, yeah. it needed to break apart. But how do we make sure that we don't just, you know, explode like a planet and then lose touch altogether with, with what matters? So anyway, that, there's a lot yeah. of questions in there, but just respond well, to what you want to. Well, I, I think that there always is the danger of breaking apart. There's always the danger of deconstructionism that isn't positive. It just, you know, needs denialism and people leave the faith. Right. So there's one of the things that I, that I mentioned in the thesis that is so um, centering for me is uh, Robert Sokolowski um, talks about this notion of what he says uh, it is found in religious context, and that is where you decide you're a person who is in. He calls it, uh, you become a dative, um, using the language of a dative, uh, which is like saying, so if I, if I say, um, uh, Aaron, do you have a dog? 
I do. But what's his name or her name? Zeno. Talk about Zeno. dialectic. So, so, so if I okay, so I say Aaron took Zeno to the vet. Zeno is the dative in that sentence because Zeno is not really doing anything. Something's being done to Zeno, mm-hmm. right? So you're doing something to Zeno, and the and the uh, vet is doing something to Zeno, but Zeno is just in it. I I think that faith is about choosing to be a dative. Hmm. I'm just in the story. I I don't understand it completely. I have glimpses of it. Sometimes my glimpses seem to be more solid, and then sometimes they seem a little more fluid. And but I'm in. I, I don't care if I totally understand it, and I don't care if I totally have it right. In fact, I'm convinced I have it wrong on some level, because you know I see through a glass darkly. So I'm groping on some level. But there's some things I do know. I mean, there's some things that I embrace that they call them axiomatic truths. You know, like God is good. <laughs> yeah. Right? God is yeah. Trinity. You know, I, I, and so my kind of simplicity is I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. You know, he was born of the Virgin Mary because he, you know, et cetera. So, so I, I think that, that even though I'm, I'm kind of fundamentalist, but not in the sense that I'm defending it. I'm fundamentalist in the sense that I am in on the story. And this is what the church has believed. And if it ever rearticulates that 50,000 years from now or 500,000 years from now, if the Lord doesn't come and it just, you know, the, the sun is supposed to last another, what, 5 billion years? I don't know. You know, the sun goes dark <laughs> someplace in the Bible. Maybe it's 5 billion years from now. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah. I'll tell you what, if we're out 50,000 years or 500,000 years from right now, and people are looking at these ancient texts, they're not going to be reading them exactly the same. No. And if the church reconstitutes it and says, no, we think this is more faithful to what was seen, because there's some sense in which this ancient world that is flat earthed, that imagines a world or a universe or a cosmos where, you know, the sun goes around us and the, there's a crystalline sphere that the stars are in and everything beyond it is God's heaven. I mean, that's how they imagine. So Paul says, I went to the third heaven. Right. Yeah. He has the cosmology of the ancient world. So when and how does that rearticulate? What does it say about us? What what does it mean if we find out the earth really is billions of years old? And the universe is billions of years old. What does that say about God? What does that say about God's patience? What does that say about hmm. God's openness? I mean, there's, you know, so I think the further we get out, the more knowledge comes. We have to understand that these things we have to be able to rearticulate with but being firm on what we believe to be the central tenets of what we are. And we're just in. Yeah. And then we let, because I believe this, how would I act in this milieu, cultural milieu? Because I believe this, how would I perceive these scientific facts? I mean, because I'm in, what does that, and how does that inform my response? And that may take a while to articulate and talk about, but it's something that can't be done by me, by myself. I would suggest many of the things that are going to be have to talk about can't be done by one generation. Right. I mean, I think that some of what we're talking about is a multi, you know, when people talk about the sexuality issues, I think, gosh, you know, this might be four generations for now before the church actually can talk about it in a way that's faithful and they understand it. It doesn't just, you know, all mean spirited and, and, right. and polarizing, you know? So I think that we have to understand, wait a minute, we are just in this. We don't have it all figured out. And why are you thinking that? Well, that's just, I don't think I agree for these reasons, but entering into that 
move toward ecumenism and openness and spiritual people can afford this. Right. Well, I, I think to your point, right, in terms of creedal Christianity, we could all say that same creed, all three of us, and yet all three of us might interpret it in a different way. And yet all three of us would say we're in. And I would think that we're gracious enough to go, and I believe that you're in too, right? Like, and there's something about that, again, that kind of goes back to that kind of liturgical grounding, which is what drew me, of course, was kind of this sense that there can be a space that I can say I'm in. This is me. This is who I am. This is a part of where I am. And there's an openness for me to explore to, I mean, one of the first things I asked my now Bishop, my current Bishop, I just said, I just have to know that if I come to the table, I can be a part of the table, even if I'm exploring something that may not be uh, the most kosher, right? Like thing, because, because the spirit's leading me somewhere and I'm trying to be faithful. And I, I would, I would hope that's a vision that I think some people would would resonate with or hope to yes. kind of engage with but as like to chris's point about kind of fundamentals and breaking for a certain reason that i you know there's a part of me that also just kind of gets bummed because i go well i think it's also breaking because there's gonna be those that hold to that kind of notion of yes nothing can be different nothing can change it has to be this uh, or I'd, I think is, I'd rather it die than have it change, right? Well, I think that's anti-Pentecostal. Obviously, this is why, you know, if you argue for the essences of being revivalistic and the sense of open to new encounters with the spirit, if it's mystical, where we're being united with God and with one another, and if we have an imagination that's affected by the spirit, it opens up the space for mm. us to, you know, that's why I think we need to fight for that. Yes. And then some of the expressions, I, I have these essences, and then I describe some of the manifestations of those, which I think are things like theological openness, this notion of affections where we fall in love with Jesus and with each other, that we're impacted on an affectual level, right? Kind of thing. Yeah. So it, it's not necessarily gifts of the spirit. I think that that's in the Pentecostal story and there should be an openness of it. But I think even speaking in tongues, I mean, I'm a tongue talker. And, and I love speaking in tongues, um, but I, I, you know, I, I never forget meeting a young gal. I mean, this is when I first started pastoring in the eighties. She was a um, campus crusade for Christ gal, had never spoken in tongues. And that lady looked and acted and more like Jesus. I felt the presence of Jesus with that lady. And I, and I'm listening to her and I'm being impacted by her presence. I mean, she was that kind of sweet and holy and i remember i remember stopping our conversation it was the first time i met her i said you don't speak with tongues do you? <laughs> she said no i don't know anything about that really and i thought oh my gosh here's this lady who's so deeply immersed in the spirit who's not a tongue talker now as i got to know her over a few years i said you know what I mean, I think everybody can speak with tongues, but I just think it's really easy. I just think some people just don't understand whatever I said. Would you let me pray? I leave my hands in there. She'd start being a tongue. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Pentecostal in that sense. I'm a tongue a guy. But I have no qualms with understanding. I mean, Paul said not everyone speaks with tongues. I get how people interpret that in different ways. Right. But not everyone speaks with tongues, dude. I mean, however you say it, it's just not everyone does. And does that mean their class? If that's what Pentecostalism is. If those kinds right. of specifics are, we got some problems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that is one of the, the, to that fundamentalist point, right? Like that's one of those points that kind of takes 
what is so beautiful about Pentecostalism that, that resonates with so many people, that kind of radical openness to the spirit, and it demands that the spirit looks a certain way that doesn't resonate with that understanding of radical openness, right? Like, I think anytime we try to say the spirit must look this way, we've become anti-Pentecostal. Yes. One more thing I want to say with this, back to what Chris was saying, is one of the, one of the things about revivalism that Wesley does is he talks about the about how difficult it is to hold on to it. That revivalism, if you're not careful, if you try to sustain it, you know, there are seasons of refreshing. There are times when revival comes. There's times when the voice of the Lord is rare. There are just times that things are different. And so how do you sustain a revivalist openness? And one yeah. of the ways that they talk about that is by remembrance, is thinking back on those mm. moments when you've mm -hmm. had those encounters and living them in your heart and adoring God. And, and it's, I, I quote, um, who's the guy, the uh, Jewish fella, um, you remember what I'm talking about, Father Chris? Uh, Heschel. Yes, 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 Heschel, where he talks about, he says that, that the times where, you know, that the way he sustains faith is remembering when he had faith. <laughs> it was and, and it's part of that remember, that's, that's part of why the Eucharist is called the great, you know, remember me right? Yeah. The, the Lord's table or us coming to the Psalms and praying that we're remembering things, doing the text. We're remembering, we're staying in a revivalist arc, not because we're having a moment of revival all the time, because if you think you're supposed to, you, that, you'll just become a victim of faking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so I think that, 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 that this is again, where, where it's, you know, we go back to that being tethered to being in to liturgical life, to the scripture, to prayer. These are things that aren't sexy, you know, that sometimes you're just walking through. I, we pray twice a day. You know, we pray through an office twice a day. We do it online. And uh, it's not, I mean, sometimes it's just like we're just saying words, but there's something about it yeah. that captures us, right? I've been working on a piece about Alexander Min, who was a Orthodox priest. He was killed in 1990. This was the post-Soviet era. But most of his priesthood was carried out kind of in the Soviet um, period. I mean, he was born, I don't need to go into his whole history, but the, the night before he died, it's very similar to MLK, actually. Like the night before he died, he gave a, a final talk that kind of summed up his whole career and then was killed the very next day. And it's it's remark it's remark the similarities parallels with MLK are stunning, but the in that final talk he talks a bit about the ways in which Christians have have feared the rise of secularism. Now remember this is a, a while back, right? And he's talking about Russia, so it's a slightly different context. But I think that it holds the the, the point holds that he says, we don't have anything to fear from that. And he says, Christians who are tormented by the question, I, I have, of course, this is English translation, but this is pretty much a, a direct quote. Christians who are tormented by the question, does the church have a future, have forgotten the promise of Christ to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against mm. it. And I think one of the things that's striking 
is in, in the midst of the culture wars, what, what gets exposed really quickly is whether or not you actually trust God with the future or not. Right? Wow. Do we trust God with our institutional future? Do we trust God with our theological future? Do we trust God with the church's future and the world's future as well as, as our own? And some of what I think, Bishop, your work is calling us back to is this, that revivalism will only work if it's truly mysticism, truly mysticism. Like the moment revivalism is driven by our own energies and not mm. simply carried along by confidence in the energies of God. Yes. The moment it shifts back to what we're bringing, then we're yeah. the prophets of Baal. We're cutting ourselves. We're screaming. We're trying to, to move <laughs> yes. our God to act. Right? Yeah. We're trying to move our God to act instead of just building altars and trusting God yes. will do what God is going to do. And I think that that not, I mean, not to get preachy about it, but that that's kind of where we are. And I think all of us, whatever our ecclesial location and whatever our vocation within the churches, it does come down to that, right? Either you trust that God will show up and do what only God can do and you live accordingly, or you think you've got to manage it. And, and then at that point, you will put your hands on things that you yes. handle. And what's so important about that is you have to be okay with, with seasons that don't seem very powerful. Yeah. You know, there was some sense as I was growing up, even in the charismatic context, that we needed to see power. We needed to see demonstration all the time. If there wasn't demonstration of God being present in some powerful way, then we had not prayed enough. We had not done something enough. And what ended up happening, I think, is we became victims of our own past, you know, times where we thought moments were fresh, where we were really singing long, or we were at the altar long. And so we try to imitate it to try to get that back. And it created a space yeah. where you couldn't be honest about, you know, my life sucks right now. God, why have you forsaken me? This sounds, you know? right. And that's okay. It's okay. I mean, it's okay to recognize I'm in this. I don't quite get what's going on. I, I, these are seasons of, and I love is one of the things that uh, Chris said when I first met him as we were talking about um, the, the power of things like the daily office, using abbreviary to pray and not just always being spontaneous or things like going to the table regularly. What those do is they create space for when life doesn't work. Hmm. for yeah. you to be gathered up and held onto that we that the, the, if some of our spirituality if it's just rooted in revivalism with that expectation of you know height and awareness and whatever it, there's no room for loss you know yeah. how, how do you die in that i mean everybody wants to be healed but how does a person die faithfully right I, we cannot go where i'm about to say something but i just feel like because of what Chris said, right, this this idea of going back and thinking this reality, you know, uh, I will build my church, right? This this reality of, of Christ's proclamation of building the church. And I think about my, my also my Pentecostal upbringing of we're having a revival service, right? Like there's this certain preacher that's being brought in. We're like creating the structure for revival to happen while there was still the recognition that you know, it takes the spirit. It was kind of like, a, it has to happen on the Sunday night at this time, or 
all week we're going to try it and see what happens, right? But but even beyond that, that statement that I will build my church, it's just especially in what's going on within our church culture today and the current kind of scandals and the current, you know, there's something to be said about looking at when when these churches fail, that we always look at it as something outside of God or something wrong or there's something or rather maybe we can start actually recognizing that when churches fail, it is Jesus going again, I will build my church, right? Versus not the church that you built, not the kingdom you, I will build mine. And it takes sometimes things to die. Now, I I wish we, I don't know. That's awesome. No, no, go ahead, Ed. No, I'll do realist. This is one of the things that, you know, I'm not a young earther. You know, I have bought into an old earth and I don't know how it all worked out, but God somehow very patiently oversaw whatever happened. But when you think about billions of years, you know, you really, I, I don't think God's freaked out about every generation that freaks out. I remember, <laughs> I remember right. in uh, in uh, in college, there was a religious professor we have, and he was having a conversation with me. He said, "You know," he said, "During the Middle Ages, he said there was a there was about this uh, time when the public got all excited about bloodlust. You know, they loved the sword play and the and ja- you know they were the, you know the javelins and the riding horses and all that stuff they were doing in the games where they would fight each other on the village level. They'd have these huge hmm. festivals and." All kinds of people were getting killed. Kids were getting killed. And the <laughs> right. church was against it. They started, they said, well, you can't do that. And they kept doing it. And they said, well, we're, we're going we're gonna to excommunicate anybody that organizes these games. They kept going on. And we're going to excommunicate anybody that participates in the games. They kept going on. We're going to excommunicate you if you go to the games. They <laughs> kept going on. And for 300 years, huh. the church could do nothing about these games. And then one year, it stopped. Huh. What is that? So he made the comment to me. He said, you know, one of the things I think, he's a Latin Catholic guy, Roman Catholic guy. He said, one of the things I think, he said, somewhere in the 50s, the whole sexuality issue in the West got a little crazy. He says, continuing to. He said, who knows? It might be with us for five centuries. But it'll work itself out. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I want to jump in right there to say, I, you know, that line, it's in Ezekiel 43, and then it shows up a couple of times in Revelation. The voice of the Lord is like the sound of many waters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it hit me just, just recently that that's one of the ways in which the Lord works in history against evil structures and systems. You know, mm-hmm. water gives us life in all kinds of ways, you know, slakes our thirst, satisfies us, refreshes us, cleanses us, you know, use it to wash our bodies, wash wounds. But water can also be destructive, right? It can, it can erode. Yeah. And flood. And I think that the ways in which the voice of the Lord that's like many waters works against structures of oppression, like slavery, is that it just erodes it over time. Mm. So that the even though there aren't many Christians who are speaking the truth about slavery, you do have people like Gregory of Nyssa who are saying, you know, even in the ancient church, you shouldn't own a slave at all any more than you would own Jesus. Because every person you meet 
is yeah. right so it's absurd for you to, to think about mm. or the pat you know there the bible of course is filled with passages that are quote-unquote pro-slavery but there are also passages that call it into question right and yes. anytime there you have men and women kind of speaking the truth it's slowly eroding the, the voice of the lord that's like the sound of many waters is slowly eroding the foundations of slavery and eventually it just crumbles right and i think that you know the same thing for bloodlust or yeah confusion <laughs> about sexuality i think that's a that's a for me at least is a helpful way of thinking about god's willingness to work long hours yes. <laughs> yeah. but you know you remember yeah. Yeah, it's that Psalm 2 where, you know, the nations are in an uproar, the peoples are devising these schemes, and kings of the earth are taking their stand, the rulers are counseling together against the Lord and against his anointed of that. And then it says, God sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> and so does scoffs at them. You get this image, he's just not freaked out right. about the scandal that's going on down the street. He's just not freaked out. It's just nothing. God, you know, it, there's some way in which, yeah, I'm 66 years old, dude. I was 14 a few weeks ago, and I'm going to be dead in a few years. I mean, I, you know, it's just like, what is life? <laughs> you know, you, you've got to get if That's a 10 year. You only get about seven or eight of those puppies if you're really blessed. Yeah. And life is gone and we're gone. Right? They're talking about climate change, and I'm concerned about. No, I mean, I think we should take care of creation, you know, and do our best. But, but they're they're talking about. They were talking the other day. I was watching how they were talking about in 2100 or something, whatever it was, um, uh, that 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 um, what, what would it be 2300? That they were talking about what was going to happen, and I was thinking, gosh, I mean, that's like my grandkids' grandkids. <laughs> it's like it's so close, and yet it's so far. We yeah. just we we just have got to on some level get a sense. That not, this this is beyond our generation and beyond us, and all the best thing to do is be a dative. Well, I and I love our our prayer that there's always that line that always sticks out to me, right? World without end, yes. right? That that line for various different whether it's the eschatological world without end, or whether it's just the recognition like what you're saying. There's all this to be freaked out about, and we need to work, and we need to act, and we need yes. to plant a tree today, even if we know yes. it's going to end tomorrow, there's all of that. Yes. But at the end of the day, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. That is absolutely. We have to be aggressive about that. Yes. Yeah. As though um, our lives really mattered because <laughs> they do. Ed, thanks so much. I think this has been really, really one. I think it's been really helpful to explain some of the kind of like what is Pentecostalism in a way that maybe a lot of people haven't heard before. Right. It's not tongues like you've talked about, but it's this other three things that kind of make this spirituality, right? Um, and how it kind of works out into so many different aspects of even different churches, right? I, you know, one part we didn't get to talk about, and maybe we'll do this again sometime in the future, is kind of not, not comparing and contrasting for the sake of trying to make us different, but recognizing why this is unique compared to maybe some other kind of Christian yes. streams. But I think it's been really helpful. I, I hope for so many people, this kind of like way of thinking, even the way I think that all of us have been talking is a different way of thinking, right? It's somewhat of that pneumatological imagination, not to overstate what we do, but kind of thinking different, right? Engaging in this kind of like spirit talk that might, doesn't always have to be said, I'm using the word Holy Spirit in every single sentence, but there's something born out of the reality of the spirit, right? Um, 
so if anything, it's been super refreshing to me. Um, and, and every time I talk to Chris and now I talk to you, it's just further to get the stupid dissertation done. And there's some, uh, feeling good about it when talking to both of you. So we're going to get there, but Ed, thanks so much. How can any of uh, the listeners kind of follow along with anything you're doing, writings, thinking? Well, if, if we, you know, I'm, I'm a bishop within the Diocese of St. Anthony. And uh, if they just kind of tap along, you know, we pray every day, morning and night. Um, we have an order of St. Anthony that's also on the web that people can, if they want to engage, if they've never done it, engage using breviaries for prayers. It's just amazing wonderful experience that not everybody enjoys it, but it's a good tethering time. And through those kinds of ways, I think that, 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 that people may find, uh, at least they certainly would be connected with whatever I'm doing because that's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed, thank you. Thank you. Chris, uh, I know you kind of briefly said it, and I don't think a lot of people knew that you had some issues, uh, health wise. So praying for you, if any listener is a praying person, keep Chris in prayers as he is on this journey. Um, and hopefully we'll talk to you both soon. Great. Thanks for doing this. Dan.